Well, good morning to you. Uh, just so we're clear, I'm really the warm-up act, all right? And the, uh, Eleanor is headlining tonight. So um, uh, I'll do my best. But um, you really want to come this evening. Uh, it, is, uh, uh, it is a great delight for us. We were here at the first service, you probably gathered, and loved it. And you're, you're a wonderful bunch, you really are. Um, we have followed you, um, you know, we, we, we have heard and seen what God's been doing with you over the last few years, and it's a wonderful thing in the, that God is doing this part of the world, and um, it's a privilege to be here, so thank you for enduring us all day. If you have a Bible within reach, either on your lap in the printed form, or providing you don't do emails on your digital device, would you turn to 1 Corinthians, please, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. If you can't find it, look in the index. <clears throat> and I would love to turn, start at chapter 1, so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message, this is the Apostle Paul writing, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, he quotes the Old Testament here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Let me, let me just pause there, just hit the pause button for a moment, because um, a little bit of context might be helpful. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in Greece. He'd visited there several times, and then things uh, initially went very well, then they got things went, came a little bit out of sync and went a little bit wacky. So this is, he probably wrote two or three letters, we're almost certain, and only a couple are captured in the New Testament, the others have been lost. And, and what was happening was that, very like our culture in the West, um, in, the in the church, in the culture in Corinth, two things were highly prized. One was wisdom, and the other was power. And um, so if you were wise, I mean, a lot of people in Corinth, just as you have your own vet or your own GP or your own tame hairdresser, so you would, in, if you were in Corinth at the time, you'd have your own guru, your own philosopher you'd go to. You see, so wisdom was highly prized, and therefore the opposite, foolishness, was, was despised. And also, in that culture where power was highly valued, again, the opposite, weakness, was despised. And as you know, in Greek culture, and certain extent ours, any sort of weakness is despicable. So women were despised because they were perceived as weak. Slaves were despised. People with disabilities were despised. Cowards were despised. Anybody who was weak was despised and dismissed. So... Um, uh, 
what was happening was some of this confusion about wisdom and power. Sorry, wisdom and foolishness and power and weakness. This confusion was beginning to leak, seep into the church. So Paul writes to them, and you'll see as we read it, he plays around with these ideas. Does that make sense? So let's have a, uh, did you used to do high jump at school? You, you know, if you knock the bar over once, you allowed another run at it? Yeah, so let's have another run at this, see if I can do a bit better. <laughs> let's start picking up verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There you go, you see, he begins to. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. What he means there is Jews are constantly saying, show me, show me. And Greeks look for wisdom. Greeks are saying, prove it. Now, have you ever come across people who've said to you about Christianity, about God, either show me or prove it? So it's nothing very, you know, it's nothing very new. But, he says, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ and he's crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. He goes on, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So he's basically saying, press the rewind button and go back to the time when you first met Jesus. Maybe at an alpha course, I don't know. Whenever you first encountered Jesus, think back to that. Not many of you. At that time, not many of you were wise, not many of you, by human standards, not many of you were influential, not many of you were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the, and the despised things, and, and even the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. And then just jump to beginning of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, and he's talking about his visit to Corinth, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom. In other words, I didn't play the philosopher's game as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. No, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ. Oh, and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So when I read those paragraphs to you, what do you immediately think of? What words spring effortlessly into your mind. I'll tell you. Hagen Das. Well, that's self-evident. We'll go on. 
Do, do you know the story of Hagendas? I don't think you do. This is perfectly true. Um, a, a Polish couple uh, emigrated to the United States and uh, in the ni 1920s. And they started selling ice cream around the streets of New York, literally off the back of a horse and cart, homemade ice cream. 30 years later, 1959, they had a bright idea. They thought to themselves, well, the, the discerning ice cream lovers of New York would probably pay a little bit more for a product if it was slightly superior. You know, a little creamy, a little more sophisticated. Um, you know, looks a little more market. And judging by the marketing in more recent years, you know, a trifle sexy. <laughs> so they'd come up with this new recipe and they were racking their, literally, they're racking their brains to know what to call this new product. This is perfectly true. And Rose Mattis was in their, standing in their kitchen in the, their Bronx apartment. And just randomly, she grabbed a number of consonants and a number of vowels, threw them together into two words, and put a hyphen between the two. Hagen Das. It means absolutely nothing. It's completely random. Did you know that? I always, I know, but I always assume a bit like Marks and Spencer. You know, there was a Mr. Hagen and a Mr. Das, and Ben and Jerry, Mr. Ben, because they were two real people, Mr. Ben and Mr. Jerry, until they fell out. So I assume that's what happened. Not at all. And some of you here, I, I see, are old enough to remember the original Hagen Das. It used to have a map of Scandinavia on the side. Do you remember that? It has nothing to do whatever with Scandinavia. It's complete, complete nothing, whatever. It's new, it comes from New York, the Bronx. Do you see? So, the, the, but the fact that although the name is almost unpronounceable, and the words themselves are totally without any, devoid of all meaning whatsoever, that need be no bar bar to a very great marketing success. Why? Because image is everything. And this was the issue in Corinth, the image. What should the image of Christianity be? And there were some in the church in Corinth that say, look, Paul, when Paul came to visit us, he got it all wrong. You see, and how we should really market Christianity is by presenting um, Christians as powerful, wise people, you see. And, and Paul got it wrong. And if only we could, you know, in, in, his was a, a sort of marketing blunder. And only, if we could only readdress it, then things would be fine. It will attract more people. And so Paul writes back to them and basically says, not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. You know the, do you know the definition of advertising? Advertising may be described as the science of arresting human intelligence long enough to get money from it. And presumably some of the marketing advertising people in Corinth were saying, you know, we need to readjust all this. So Paul says, no, 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 and he writes back, and basically he talks about the product, the sales force, and the sales technique. We've only got time for a couple of those. So first of all, the product. You see, what he, he says to the Corinthians here is, in the eyes of the world, to those who are outside, Christianity seems to present a weak, foolish message. And that's quite deliberate, a weak, foolish message. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross, that's the death of the violent death of Jesus, 
is foolishness to those who are perishing, he says. And you say, well, hang on, what, John, why foolishness? Well, quite simply, because the idea that you can find out the truth about God, we're all searching for truth, and the, the idea that you can find out the truth about God at the crucifixion of Jesus is absurd. Barking. Uh, th this is a sort of stage here. Imagine, oh, I didn't, there are curtains there, actually. Imagine when we all came in this morning, all the curtains were shut, okay? And just humor me, but just imagine that God was in the space behind the curtains, and the rest of us couldn't see a thing. So the only way we're going to get to know God is if he draws the curtains back a bit, which is precisely what he did in the, the history of the world. He drew the, first of all, in creation, making things so spectacular as he did, as the Bible says, that heavens declare the glory of God. There are endless references to the fact that the beauty of the natural world points <clears throat> to the existence of God, but that wasn't enough. So a little bit later, several thousand years later, God drew the, millions of years later, he drew the curtains back a bit more and created his own people, his own tribe, his own gang, the people of Israel, to demonstrate what he was like. That didn't fully, people still didn't fully get it, so he opened the curtains a bit more when he sent the prophets. They were there to talk about God. Even that didn't entirely cut it. So eventually he flung the curtains wide open, as wide as they would go, and sent his son Jesus, who perfectly reflected the Father in heaven. And in fact, if you want to know the point, the, as it were, the high watermark or the climax of when that happened, strangely enough, and it does sound bizarre, doesn't it? We have to go to a hill outside a city, the city of Jerusalem. And there on the, on the well, on the site outside the city, which doubled as both as the, their recycling center, you know, the rubbish tip, and the place of execution. So think um, recycling tip and Tower of London green. You see three men being executed there, and the one to, in the middle is the one to watch. Because what's happening there in the whole of creation and the whole of history, displayed there more clearly, more spectacularly, more vibrantly than you ever see it anywhere else in the whole of history, what God is like. I mean, to think that the God of heaven would reveal himself in the bloody, messy scene of torture and execution, which, as you know, crucifixion was the most dreadful method of torture and execution ever invented by mankind. At that point, God is, you know, think of the screams, the blood, the cursing, the the smell, the stench, the flies. I mean, just the whole thing is disgusting. But that's where God is perfectly revealing himself. I mean, it's utterly ridiculous, unless it's true. I mean, haven't you sometimes been talking with a friend at Starbucks who's not a Christian, and they're giving you a bit of a hard time, and you're talking about Christianity, and as you talk, you think, this sounds weird. Have you ever thought that? This sounds weird. No wonder they're puzzled. Do you know? 
You see, to many of us, the cross is utter nonsense. It's a contradiction. It's like, it's like talking about boiled ice. It just doesn't connect. It makes, uh, makes their hair down, they makes, put their teeth on edge. It's like running your fingers down a blackboard. <laughs> but, and then look at verse 24, but... It's like Paul says, yes, with all of that, I can understand. But then he comes, it's like he grabs a drumstick and whacks one of those symbols as loud as it with, And with a crash, he comes in verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's wisdom and God's power are, 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 are condensed, are encapsulated, are distilled, are made tangible in the crucifixion of Jesus. In Christ, God has overpowered and outsmarted everyone. And how did he do it? He did it with his lavish grace and forgiveness and mercy and kindness. He just poured it out. None of us deserved it, and he just poured it out, poured his own life out, literally. Yep, and as if to drive the mess point home, he says, I, when I came, I preached a weak message. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ. And he's about to put his pen down. And he, said, no, and he qualifies, he said, no, I, I was with, while I was with you, I, nothing except Jesus Christ, and as an afterthought, and him crucified. In other words, a weak, foolish, battered body, broken body that you and I may have access to the Father. So, first of all, a weak, foolish message. <coughs> Excuse me. Not only that, he says, with the product, let's talk about the sales force. Look, not only was it a weak, foolish message that it appears to be to outsiders, it also to those who are outside, have you, um, have, you ever, have you ever been to Westminster Abbey and gone in the Great West Door, you know, the main entrance? I don't know if you noticed, but as you walk in, above the thing, there's a big rose window, and it's set in, you know, stone, a lot of um, stained glass. But from the outside, it looks actually pretty D-U-double-L, you know, a bit plain and uninteresting. You don't think much of it, in you go. But then if you walk, begin to walk up the main aisle, you know, around the tomb of the unknown warrior and up towards, and then you turn back and look due west, you look up and you suddenly say, to yourself, my, oh, my, the most stunning rose window with the light behind it. It looks just fantastic. And, and so many people, you were maybe the same, that from the outside, it looks one thing. In, in this case, the message looked rather weak and foolish from the outside. Oh, but coming on the inside and then look back, everything changes. It's stunning. And, and so he's talking here about a weak, foolish message, and then he goes on to talk about weak, foolish messengers. Again, to the outsider, Christians look weak and foolish. I mean, they've never been popular. They've never had a good press. The world's never been impressed with Christians. Look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Just 
Now think back to when you first came to Jesus. Not many of you were, of, were wise by human standards. I mean, not many of you had <clears throat> doctorates in philosophy or were Nobel Prize winners. And maybe a few of you, and if you're in that category, you're sitting here with a PhD, God bless you, you don't need to apologize. All he's saying is statistically, not many of us in that category. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were movers and shakers, you know, on the city council or mayor or members of parliament or goodness knows what else. Again, if you're an MP here, God bless you, and, you know, thank you for doing what you do. But, but all I'm saying is there are not many of us who are movers and shakers, entrepreneurs or hedge fund managers or whatever you are. Not many of us, not many of us were of noble birth. There may be, I was going to say, the odd aristocrat, what I mean, the, the occasional aristocrat here. Yeah, but, um, I mean, honestly, it's not your fault. You were born with it. <laughs> but again, you don't need to apologize for a moment. That's not his point. Nobody's picking on you. He's just saying that most of us were bog-standard ordinary, is what he's saying. Look at the adjectives of God's people, verses 27 and 28. Foolish, weak, lowly. Yeah, and that's, that's not far off how, you know, look at the press. Look at Newsnight. You know, the way Christians are portrayed. Hmm? Not far off, is it? And then again, notice verse 27 to verse 28. Verse 27 again, he grabs his drumstick and gives a thwack to the cymbal. With a crashing sound, he comes in, but, but, and you know, look, look at this. Fascinating. Verse 27, but God chose. You may think weak and foolish, uh huh, but God chose. And in just in case you didn't get it the first time, he repeats it in the same sentence. Second time, verse 27, God chose. God chose the foolish things. Verse, in the second half, verse 20, God chose the weak things of the world. And in, in case, you know, you and I are a little slow. He has it again in the next verse, a third time. He says, God chose. Look at it, verse 28. God chose the lowly things. So it may appear to the outsider that these Christians are rather weak and foolish. Don't you believe a word of it? God chose you. I mean, the, God chose you and you. God chose you and you and you and you and you who are nearly asleep in the back row. And you, and you. God chose you. It's phenomenal. What do you mean? God, that's the, I mean, Paul says it here, you, you get the same signal again and again and again in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God chose. Didn't have to. None of us, yes, we all know none of us deserved it. And I wouldn't have chosen me, given half a chance. So it's a great mystery. It's one of the great mysteries of the faith that God chose us. Not that we're better than other people, but for some reason best known to him, he chose us. Well, that changes everything. Ooh, hang on. Christians, as I say, don't have a very good press. Uh, in AD 178, so that's just a little over 100 years after Jesus was literally walking around on the earth and then was... Um, crucified, resurrected, and ascended. 
A man called Celsus wrote this, let no cultured person draw near Christianity, none wise, none sensible. <laughs> if you've got any sort of canniness about you, stay well away. But if anyone is ignorant, if anyone's a fool, oh, let him or her come boldly. If you're an idiot, come on in, come join us. Of Christians, he goes on, you see, we see them in their own houses, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. They're like a swarm of bats, he gets a little carried away, ants creeping out of their nests, or frogs, this is interesting, frogs holding a symposium in a swamp, or a collection of worms in a lump of, I better call it mud, for politeness sake. That's AD 178. And uh, some years later, writing in the Sunday Times, A.A. Gill wrote this. He said, at a dinner party recently, in passing, really without thinking, I mentioned that I was a Christian. Well, he said, that did it. The person sitting next to me almost inhaled her asparagus. Her eyebrows shot to the top of her head and disappeared into her hairline. Nostrils bulging, she... <laughs> She waved her arms as if for a passing lifeboat. A Christian, she gasped, Lady Bracknell-like. A Christian as in believing in God, the God, that God. Oh dear, yes, he says, that God. You can't possibly be. You're not. He said, you need to know that during the course of the conversation that evening, she'd already found out that I hadn't been a drug dealer, I hadn't spent my adult years wetting my bed, I hadn't smoked cigarettes out of the gutter. I hadn't slept in dog baskets. I hadn't drunk benelin and vodka through a straw for breakfast. I'd done none of those things. How, she said, could you possibly be anything so embarrassingly naff and hick and unbelievable as a believer? No, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a funny way of putting it, but it's, I mean, it's not that far from what many of us experience, is it? But God chose. In other words, it's no accident. It's no random collision of zillions of molecules that you happen to be here this morning. You've got, frankly, you've got better things to do with your Sunday morning, haven't you? Unless you had a reason for coming here. And one of the reasons is because God chose you. There are other reasons. The fact that you're here is actually because God chose that you should be here this morning. So that you should join with his family, worship him, adore him. And hear a little bit about this book. Be reminded of what many of you know this to be true, but we all lose sight of it, don't we? We forget a number of times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul particularly says, remember, and let me remind you, and don't forget, and call to mind. You know, one of the things that leaders do and speakers do is repeat themselves. One of the things that leaders do is repeat themselves. One of the things that leaders do is repeat themselves. Just because, ah. So what Paul is saying is, no, look, God chose what may appear to be weak and foolish. God chose. God picked you out. And he chose ordinary people. Abraham Lincoln, you remember the American president, often used to say, God must love common people because he made so many of them. 
and that's the truth. God chose ordinary people, and he made them, makes us, makes them extraordinary. God chose what otherwise might be described as nobodies and made them into somebodies. And he did it by choosing them and then introducing them to his son Jesus so they might be forgiven and be given new life. And then he pours his Holy Spirit into their lives and into their bodies and into their brains so that ordinary people might become extraordinary. There's just, you say there's no other explanation from that becoming that. How, 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 I mean, look at this church. I mean, just look around for a moment. Look, look at yourselves. Come on, you're allowed to look around. I mean, you're, let me put it politely, you're a pretty rum bunch. I mean, you're, there's a quite, very, fair amount of diversity here. Different backgrounds, different educational, different countries you come from, different this, different that. So how do you explain this church and what God has done here in the last few years? How do you explain that? There's no other explanation. I mean, how do you explain the fantastic things you see at Alpha and uh, Focus and HDB, just to pick on Prayer Weekend, the National Prayer Week. How do you explain all that? Because God chose. God said, I'm, before the world began, before the foundation of the world, said, I'm going to do something here in Guildford, in the MS Road Church. And I'm going to choose you lot to be part of it. Very exciting. And just mind-boggled. It boggles life. And it's a marvelous thing. And you notice Paul says, he goes on to say, weak, foolish messengers, yes, and he goes on to say, um, by the way, I came as a very example of the, th the very thing I'm talking about. I came as a weak messenger, chapter 2 and verse 3. I came to you in weakness and with, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Well, you say, why? That's not the image we tend to have of the Apostle Paul, is it? We tend to, you know, in, in the sort of Premier League of fellows in the New Testament. I mean, you know, he's up there and right at the top of the first of the Premier League, isn't he? You know, with Peter and John and, you know, I mean, he's right up there. But he said, no, no, I was weak and fearful and trembling. See, that's normal Christianity. We've lost sight of this. That's normal Christianity. It's normal to feel weak and fearful and trembling as you serve God. It's perfectly normal. That's the way it's meant to be. So many of us think, don't we, you know, you're, you're the coffee machine at the, the, the office, and then you, the friend comes in, you're there on a Monday morning, a friend comes in, and his arm is all sore because he's hurt himself playing tennis, and just a little voice says, why didn't you pray for him? You think, well, me? And then you look around, you know, where's there a decent Christian? Where's Bill Cusack when you need him for crying out loud? <laughs> Do you know, he's not at the coffee machine. Why on earth not? You know, what's he doing with himself? You know, do you remember that fella who used to um, wear a suit and tie at work? And then when was a crisis, he used to run into a telephone kiosk and come out wearing pajamas and a cape. Do you remember? <laughs> it wasn't Percy Pig. Or what was that pig called? Pepper Pig. It wasn't Pig, it was Superman. Thank you, Superman. Yeah, many of us have that image, you know, we're, we're just sort of doing ourselves, doing the humdrum thing, wearing a suit and tie, metaphorically, and then, you know, somebody pops up and he's praying for him. We look around for a telephone kiosk to dive into, hoping that we come out wearing pajamas. 
you know, and floating in. It doesn't work like that. It's just, it's the same you either way. But the way it works is you're, you're likely to feel, you pretty well, you know, take it to the bank that you'll feel weak and probably foolish and uh, uh, fearful and trembling. So get on with it. Yeah, that's normal. So look, this is very, this is not at all complicated. What Paul is really saying is, you want to serve Jesus, and love Jesus, and participate in what he wants to do. Number one, you need to, you need to know him and love him. Well, you do. Number two, you need to be alive rather than dead. So you might check your pulse. And assuming you love Jesus and you're alive, all, the only other qualification you need is to feel weak. You feel confident and you know, blase about it. It's not, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to work. So you feel weak. Right? Then get on with it. So weakness doesn't, you see, this is the point. Weakness doesn't disqualify us. It's the very thing that qualifies us. Got it? Nod politely. And why don't you stand up and we'll pray together. <clears throat> so Paul's point in all this is, look, you want to know about me and you want to know about how this whole thing works. I came to Corinth weak and God worked. That's, that's his point. And it's exactly the same for us. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for these servants who went before us and wrote what has been captured down the centuries for us. We thank you that you have chosen us. We don't understand it. We don't begin to understand it. And we probably wouldn't have chosen ourselves, but that's not the point. The point is, Lord, that you have chosen us. And for that, we can never thank you enough. And despite our foolishness and despite our weakness, despite our loneliness, lowliness, you chose us. You loved us, you rescued us, you saved us, poured your spirit into us. And Lord, we, we love you. And we, it is our desire to be at your disposal, to serve you, to do the things that you would have us do. And in our weakness, Lord, that you will come to us. And uh, you know the Bible talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and what the word means there is, be, the verb means be filled, and it implies go on being filled, not just once, but again, 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 again. So, again, just this morning, you may want to reach out your hands empty hand. Why? But, but because you're wild, charismatic. No, 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 no. We can do what you like. Stand on your head if you like. But no, no, the point is it's a, it's a way of articulating the, the fact that we are short in the resource department. Let me put it like that. We come with empty hands. And God puts into our hands what we don't have. So, Lord, we ask that you will right now fill us with your Holy Spirit. And for this next 24 hours or next 48 hours or this next week, you will resource us, you will empower us to do what you have called us to do. Although naturally we don't have it. We don't have the guns on board. 
So we're asking you, Lord, to come upon us. Give us wisdom. Bless our brains. Bless our thinking. Bless our doing, our, our activity. And Lord, in the process, in our weakness and maybe fearfulness and even trembling, Lord, let us be more aware of your presence than we've ever done before in our lives. The fact that you've chosen us and we belong to you because of all that Jesus did when he died and rose again for us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come upon us right now. as we bump into people this week your love and beauty and kindness may spill out over them and the, the church said Amen <laughs>